from Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, the story of David Cody, former CEO of Honeywell. Independent thinking is a lot more rare than being smart. And there's a lot of smart people who can explain why things are the way they are and why things are going to be the way they're going to be. But they're kind of thinking with the herd. For somebody to be a really good leader, whether it's a business, small or big, you've got to be able to think for yourself. How David Cody went from a minimum wage job to a 17-year tenure as CEO of Honeywell. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So back in 1981, Time magazine published a cover that called Japan the world's toughest competitor. That decade, there were all kinds of worries in the U.S. that Japan would soon eclipse America as the largest economy in the world. American automakers were particularly worried, and there was actually not an insignificant amount of Japan bashing in the U.S. But David Cody looked at Japan as a model a place to emulate rather than criticize. And when he became CEO of Honeywell, at a time when the company was on the ropes, David got inspired by Toyota and its culture of excellence. And that insight led him to create a system around production and accountability that started to turn Honeywell's fortunes around. He stayed at the helm of the aerospace and engineering giant for 17 years, a tenure that was marked by enormous growth. And all this from a leader who grew up in a working-class home in New Hampshire. My dad leased a garage, a service station, for a number of years. And then when I was 14, he bought a small garage himself. My mom was a homemaker, raised five of us. And uh, the thing I always remember, and I'd say one of the things that really drove me, was I always hated never having money. <laughs> and it just bugged me to... You'd be with a bunch of friends and they'd all want to go to the store and buy a popsicle and a popsicle costs a nickel. I'd watch them all eat a popsicle because hmm. I didn't have a nickel. Hmm. And man, that, uh, well, you could tell, I mean, it's 60 years later, <laughs> I could still remember it. Same thing yeah. with being able to go to the skating rink. It costs 15 cents at night. So I would skate during the day and 
people say, I took up skiing eventually and say, oh, well, that's because you're from New Hampshire. And so, uh, no, actually not because ski club costs 15 bucks and you had to have equipment and I didn't have 15 bucks or equipment. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you end up learning later. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't one of these where it's like my parents had it and they uh, didn't want to give it. Uh, they just didn't have it either. But we always ate well. We, you know, lived in a nice enough house. There were eight of us in a six-room house, so crowded, but uh, comfortable, and they took good care of us. But there was never going to be money to do anything else. And I'd have to say that um, it, it was a motivator for me eventually. Despite David's drive to make money, his prospects weren't great. He almost quit high school. He eventually quit college to work on a commercial fishing boat, signed up for the military before bailing out, and really didn't know what to do with his life. I was really, I'd say, confused, ambitious, and directionless. And I was really trying to figure out what to do with myself. And I knew I wanted to accomplish something, but I had no idea how or where. So... I was kind of casting around and I was dating someone and I got married too because it seemed like the thing to do. And I'm living in this third floor, unheated, uninsulated apartment in New Hampshire. So you can get a sense that you kind of wore a sweater up there. And the first month we're married, my wife comes home and says she's pregnant. And <laughs> so I looked at it and said, okay. I did the math and found out, okay, I'm spending two bucks a week more than I'm making. I've got a hundred bucks in the bank. That gives me 50 weeks to figure out what the hell I'm going to do. <laughs> so I panicked. I absolutely panicked. Uh, it was my epiphany moment because I thought my kid's going to die because I'm a screw off. <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't support myself, never mind a wife and child. And how old were you at the time? Uh, let's see, it would have been 22. 22, you got a kid on the way. Yeah. And you don't have a degree. And you're working like, you know, getting probably paid minimum wage or something at, at a factory? No, it was, be it was better than that. I was making uh, <laughs> $3.66 an hour. Okay. It was considered a good job. And for all those people who talk about how we need to get back to those days where as a blue collar worker, you could support your family and- I say, well, I lived in those days. I was a blue collar worker in those days. I couldn't support my family. It wasn't, it's not that it's not just true now. It wasn't true then either. Huh. <laughs> there were certain jobs it might have been true for, but it sure as hell wasn't true generally because it wasn't true for me. And I had to admit that I was unfocused and I had to do something. And I realized, look, the only thing I'm good at is school. There was nothing I was ever going to be able to do with manual labor that would pay well because I just wasn't good at it. So I quit smoking uh, cigarettes uh, to save the money and to, I didn't want my kid to smoke. And I started exercising and I went back to school and I got a 4-0 that year. Wow, that's imp impressive. So you you go on to graduate, um, I read, from the University of New Hampshire, I think around, around 1976. And, yeah. and you get a job at... At GE, which is somewhere you'd worked before, like on the line, but I guess this this new job was in like auditing or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and what did you think you were going to do? I mean, GE was a huge company at that, at that point already, right? Did did you have like your eyes set on being an executive, or I don't know? Did you think, well, you know, we'll, we'll just see what happens? 
Well, I was, um, uh, this is back when levels were a big deal. Mm. And I was a level six. Uh, Reg Jones, who ran the company, would have been at the time a level 29 mm. when they had those levels. I thought if I could just be a level eight, my life would be, I'd be on easy street finally. I'd be able to pay all my bills. I might be able to buy a house. All I wanted to do was make more money than I than I was. I had no aspirations beyond that or a view that I would even be capable of doing something like that. Mm. None at all. But, I mean, did you have mentors there, like people who kind of saw in you potential early, like early on in your career there? Well, there was one guy in particular. He supported me getting into what they call the financial management program. Yep. And he's also the guy who pushed for me to go on the corporate audit staff and said, this is a career accelerator and something that you need to do. Hmm. So I've always had a soft spot in my heart for him. And that's why I called him and wanted to make sure that he knew. Hmm. Well, I mean, you said you didn't have a lot of ambition, but I mean, you you did take that course and, and you mm-hmm. got on GE's audit staff. Was that like, was that some sort of leadership role or were you like kind of pushing for it? I mean, I, I don't want to underestimate. I mean, I don't, I don't want to sort of devalue what you were doing, but it was kind of like, it was kind of like a paper pushing job, right? Um. No, I wouldn't say paper pushing. It was, especially that uh, corporate auditing job was actually magnificent when it came to learning. Because of the five years, I spent two of those years outside the country, Hmm. all over the world. Oh, really? Yeah. Where'd you go? Just traveling around? Uh, All over the place. Just auditing different GE uh, facilities? Yeah, exactly. So every quarter, you'd go to a different place, right? a different business. So, I mean, by the time I left that job, I think I'd visited like 15 countries. Hmm. And this was from a guy who, you know, basically grew up within a 30-mile or 60-mile radius of where I grew up in New Hampshire, if you extend going out to Boston. So th- it was a just a huge eye opener for me in terms of learning different kinds of businesses, different cultures, how do you handle work in different countries. It, it was just a magnificent learning experience for me, uh, unbelievably broadening. Hmm. I mean, it was hard because you spent 80 to 100 hours a week on the job, but man, it was tremendous, hmm. tremendous experience. All right. So, you know, you're a young guy at GE and and- I guess in 1985, you get a call from Jack Welch, who was the at the time the chairman of of GE. What first of all, what when somebody did somebody call you and say, "Hey, Jack Welch wants to talk to you"? Like, how did that happen? <laughs> well, you do good research. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, I had gotten this job in Fairfield, a job I didn't want because I felt like I couldn't continue to be a corporate guy, but. It was the only job available in the company, so I took it. Uh, You got to feed your family. One of the roles I had was to send out a request to all the businesses with a bunch of templates to fill in the financials for the strategic plan. All the businesses that GE owned and ran? Every single one of them. And this is like 1986, I think it was. And... I go to my boss at our staff meeting and I tell him, look, we probably shouldn't send out this request or even as detailed. We don't do anything 
with it. It's just a lot of work for everybody. And my boss and every single person on that staff voted me down and said, nope, we're going to do it. Uh, you need to send it out. And just, just explain why, why did you think it was a bad idea? Jack had talked about, uh, he used to talk a lot about having to eliminate bureaucracy. And this seemed to me to be pretty bureaucratic. I mean, it was a lot of forms. And when you added on the international and the business development guys, it was even more forms. Mm. And I thought it just didn't seem to be consistent with what he'd asked for or said that he wanted. But nonetheless, I said I was voted down and you do what your boss says. So I sent it out. Um, Two months later, I get a call from my secretary saying, Dave, uh, Jack Welch wants to talk to you. So I walk in and he's sitting there with the HR leader, a fellow also named Jack, Jack Pfeiffer. And he's just flipping through the thing at a rapid pace, just pissing himself off. And he just starts yelling and cursing at me. And this goes on for like 20 minutes, <laughs> asking me how I could do such a stupid thing. Don't I understand what he's trying to do? And this is ridiculous. And and I'm just standing there and I say, well, you know, it's the financial expression of the strategic plan. That's the reason that we do this. And it culminated after 20 minutes with Jack saying, all right, you've done your job. Now it's time to do mine and you can leave now. I walked out of there thinking, oh man, I'm, I'm dead. I told the people on the staff about what had happened. And interestingly, their first comment was, you didn't tell them that you didn't want to do it and we voted against you, did you? And I said, no, I didn't. And they just kind of said, oh, phew, okay, well, all right, that's good. <laughs> I thought, okay. So nothing happens for a couple months. I don't hear a word about this. And I'm thinking, geez, you know, we may, I may skate by on this thing. And I happened to be at an RCA victory uh, acquisition victory party because I was one of the two finance guys, the junior guy who had been on that deal. And I'd heard all the stories about Jack. So I walk into the, the party and there's, I don't know, 80 people there. And all of a sudden I hear him yell, Dave, Dave, get over here. And I thought, he's going to fire me here at a party? I can't believe it. I go walking over with some trepidation and my buddy, uh, from moral support came with me. And I remember Jack, thank God he was smiling. And he said, you know, I'd never been so pissed at anybody since I'd been in plastics. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, well, I really appreciated you sharing it with me. And he thought that was funny. He started laughing and he was clearly in a good mood. And my buddy looked at him and said, you know, Jack, Dave never wanted to send out that request in the first place. And he actually recommended we not do it. And Tom, our boss, and the rest of us voted him down. And I'll always remember, Jack turned to me with like this look of total shock. And he made like a, a fist to his side and said, wow, you mean you just took the knife for those guys? And I looked at him and said, well, you know, I didn't really look at it that way. You just don't throw in your friends on something like that. It's, it's not like it was something illegal. And he just was shaking his head and saying, wow, wow, okay, well, that's really something. And he's just, you know, like shaking huh. his head back and forth. Huh. And I, I thought, oh, okay, well, 
I guess that's nice. And we walked away and I told my buddy, <laughs> he was pretty good. I looked at him and said, that was really nice of you to do. I really appreciate it. Hmm. And he said, well, just so you know, if he hadn't been in a good mood, I probably wouldn't have said it. (laughs) 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 We started laughing and I said, yeah, okay, fair enough. And I guess Jack really did like you after that party because I think think after you, like you got a promotion. Yeah, it happened within like two months. I interviewed for two different jobs and uh, got one of them to go back up to Lynn Mass where I had been like seven years earlier. And now I was the CFO. I'd been, you know, the lowest level grunt in the place. And seven years later, I was the CFO. So did did Jack Welch kind of keep an eye on you at that point? Was he kind of, because clearly he's already in, he's invested in your success at that point. So did he, was he kind of tracking you? Um, I wouldn't say tracking. That would be too strong a word. But I would say he was definitely aware of me. And the fact that he was aware made other people aware that I was there. So it, there's no doubt, uh, as I tell people, advancement requires two things, performance and visibility. And now all of a sudden, I really had visibility. Wow. All right. So you become a CFO of this um, facility in Lynn and really begin the kind of the fast track to you know, higher and higher executive positions until you become – I think by 96, the CEO of GE Appliances. These are, these are the things that like the washers and dryers, right? The refrigerators, yep. like that. Mm-hmm. And where was that based? Louisville, Kentucky. And, and how, what was that like? I mean, did you, you get there and was it in good shape when you arrived in 96? No, it was not. It was always a tough business. And you were always taking out people, trying to figure out a way to make your numbers for the following year, constantly restructuring. I mean, it was a painful business to be in. And my predecessor had just invested a bunch of money in what he explained was going to be a magnificent new washer program that was going to gain share and generate all kinds of income. Mm. And he left like a month Uh, not even a month, like two weeks before the launch of it. And that sucker started losing 40 million bucks a year right away. (laughs) So, you know, he walks out and on a blaze of glory with how wonderful this thing is going to be. And instead, it's a complete disaster. And I'm having to try to explain all the time why it's bad. And I'm being blamed because I'm the one that has to do something with it now. Yeah. So (laughs) I thought, man, talk about no good deed goes unpunished. Right. This this is painful. So, I mean, you get to this this situation, right, where there's – and and as you say, I mean, the consumer – the appliance side is tricky, right, because – There's a lot of competition. It's a crowded space. I mean, this is the late 90s. You've got a lot of – now the Koreans are getting better. The Chinese are getting better. Their products are now starting to get good, really good, and they get a lot better. And so you've got to compete against all of these different products, and you've got uh, some bad decisions that were made by your predecessors. So what do you do? Well, that's exactly what we were facing and decided that we had to – just do a significantly better job on developing new products. Hmm. And one of the things that surprised me 
was, and this was a line I ended up using a lot, was it takes an awful lot of money to make an inexpensive appliance. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. <laughs> Absolutely it's, believe that. Yeah. So I embarked on a process to make sure that over a three-year period, we refreshed every single one of those major products in a major way. Even when times were tough, because the, say, industry was even worse, with Jack totally unhappy with me because we were missing our numbers, and how could I spend money on these new products? And I'd say, look, if we don't spend the money on these new products, we're just going to deal with the same problem every year forever. Yeah. So June of 99, the HR guy says, hey, Jack would like to have dinner with you. And I said, oh, okay, well, is this where I get fired? And he said, uh, no, well, you know, you need to talk to Jack. I said, okay, I get it. June of 99, have dinner with him. And first words out of his mouth is, Dave, I want you out of the company by year end. Hmm. So <laughs> that was my dinner. Then we talked about other stuff. But it's not, I'm not, it's not clear to me. Why, why did he want you out? Because uh, he didn't think I was uh, doing a great job in appliances. And he didn't view me as a successor of his. Wow. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma. It's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash wisdom. Oh, that, um... I want to just pause here and ask you about Jack Welch because yeah. in the 90s, he was kind of lionized as the greatest CEO in the world. I mean, in, in, certainly in the U.S. he was. And, you know, he's on the cover of every magazine and his sort of hard-driving shareholder return kind of style was uh, widely copied. That I, – I would, I would argue that today uh, the Jack Welch model would not work 
in many companies. That 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 model is kind of um, not really favored today by CEOs. Do you think that's true? Um, I might state it differently. I actually have a lot of respect for what he did during his 20 years there. Some people will point to aggressive bookkeeping, and I would say, okay, yeah, there was probably some of that too. But 80% of it was smart strategy and an intense desire for businesses to win. He really pushed those businesses to uh, good strategies, would invest where they needed it, and really worked hard at understanding the business and getting to the facts of things, not just listening to stories, really trying to ferret out what the facts of a situation were. So even though the guy fired me, I had a lot of admiration for what he did and what he did for me. I went to his funeral because I thought, okay, yeah, he fired me. I'm not too happy about that. But you know, at the end of the day, he really did change my life also mm-hmm. and did a hell of a job, I thought, with GE. So, Was he a model for you? I mean, eventually, we'll come back to, to this in a bit, but did you sort of think of Jack when you kind of modeled your own approach? Uh, not so much. <laughs> I would say, you know, maybe it worked at the time, to your point, the uh, way he went about it. Uh, he could be the most charming guy in the world if he wanted to. So if he wanted you to like him, you would like him. Hmm. If he didn't care, well, that would come across that way also. So I wouldn't say he changed how I was, hmm. but the fact was he created an environment where somebody like me could be successful, yeah. at least up to a point. I would say the things that were different were, I thought there were certain functions that could have been given more attention and respect, like manufacturing and IT, for example. And I became uh, just a very big believer in that. Hmm. And you could see that with some of the things that we did at Honeywell, how to conduct meetings in a way that get at the facts, but they're not intimidating. People, you don't want people afraid when they uh, sure. walk walk into the room. And I just, I just never thought that was very good. All right. So here's, here's um, a question for you. Hmm. If you were to assess yourself, okay, if you were hired as an auditor to audit you and you could remove your your emotions from it and you looked at yourself as the head of GE Appliances, uh, what's the ding on on David Cody? Yeah, I'd say there were a couple of things that I would point to. Early on, uh, this is why I say I – I'd say I think I made a mistake because there were two things. There was – we had the – a couple of problems. We had the washer problem that I mentioned. We had a refrigeration program that my guys were telling me was going to cost somewhere between 500 million and a billion to address the new regulations that were coming out. And nobody had told Jack about it. Then the third one was that a lot of our product hadn't been invested in a long time. So I kind of walked into all of that. I made a bad decision because I thought, okay, if I want to have a good chance of being Jack's successor, if I were him, I would want to know that a guy didn't come into a job and just spend all his time complaining about all the problems in a business, but rather sucked it up and tried to figure it out. The problem is he wasn't aware of everything I was dealing with. Mm. And 
there was nobody to make him aware. So as these things kind of developed over time, it just looked like I was giving him a new problem all the time. And I should have just kind of had a conversation with him at some point, even though it's not a business he wanted to pay attention to because we were small in the scheme of things and not a big driver. Yeah. To say, look, here's all the stuff I'm dealing with. This is going to be a problem. So you leave GE and go to TRW, which which was a company that produced car parts and airplanes and, and, and credit reports, I guess. Yep. And then you become CEO of the company. But I, I gather it was a, a pretty tough place to work at. I mean, there were like a bunch of financial problems when you arrived and, and you didn't last long. You stayed like, like two and a half years or something? Yeah, two and a half years. And from what I've read, like when you announced your, uh, that you were stepping down and you were going to Honeywell, like this came as a surprise. People at TRW were like, wait a minute, you just got here. What's going on? Yep. So what Definitely. happened? So what, yeah, what, <laughs> so what happened? Well, it was uh, like December of 2001, and I got a call from uh, Tom Neff at uh, Rand Spencer Stewart at the time. And he said, hey, I'd like you to consider the job as the CEO of Honeywell. And I became intrigued with the company. Hmm. And thought, geez, this is actually pretty interesting. They've got, uh, you know, two thirds of these businesses are pretty good, I think. And maybe it's worth uh, spending a little more time on this. So then it moved very fast, like mid January, February 19th, I think I started at Honeywell. Hmm. When you got to Honeywell, from what I understand, like in your first year, year the company lost two hundred twenty million dollars, but and a lot of that had to do with lawsuits, uh, settling lawsuits. But it doesn't sound like Honeywell was in a great place in, in two thousand one, two thousand two. What, what was the mood like? What do you remember about the mood at Honeywell when you got there? Um, the way I describe it is as bad as it looked externally, it was worse inter- <laughs> internally. Oh, God, <laughs> and. I remember investors saying something like, do you realize there has been $8 billion in write-offs over the last four years? That's three years worth of EBIT. And I'd say, uh, yep, uh, I am aware. <laughs> and uh, it's one of the things we got to change. And as I got into it and did a little more research, I found out we had a, a huge asbestos liability problem. I thought... We had something that was manageable based on the discussions I'd had with the prior CEO and with the general counsel and ended up learning, no, this is a massive problem. Ended up learning we had billions in environmental liability with a hundred-year-old chemical company because our strategy, as explained by the CEO at the time, had been to fight it in court until you lose and then pay. We had an underfunded pension plan. It was about 80% funded that was would require another two or three billion dollars. Hmm. So I didn't know any of this because for the first four and a half months, I was the CEO. I was directed by the chairman, the former CEO, and the board to not pay any attention to the financials, to huh. just learn the businesses. Right. And what I would actually ask one of the finance guys, a typical, so how's the quarter going? I would be told by them, we have been instructed not to answer any of those questions from you. (laughs) (laughs) You just kind of shake your head a bit and say, 
Okay, well, uh, it's just a few more months and I'll get to understand it and be able to make whatever changes I need to when the time comes. And what I ended up learning was, uh, ended up being appalling and created a real problem for me because externally by investors and and, uh, the press, I was viewed as this is the guy who didn't make it to the first tier of the GE succession race. Right. And he was not even the first choice to run Honeywell because it had been pretty public about the number of other people that they had asked. So expectations were pretty low of You were like Bob Iger at Disney when he first started. There's a reason Bob and I are friends. Okay, yeah, because he was because <laughs> nobody wanted Bob Iger to run Disney, right? He was like the board didn't want him, and and his predecessor was not encouraging them to bring him on, and right. So kind of same story. We have shared our stories, and uh, there's a lot of similarities. And I have a huge amount of respect for Bob and everything he has done there. I, I just think he is a absolutely terrific leader. Yeah. So you, you're at Honeywell and there are a lot of problems. I mean, even more than I think you were led to believe. And and I read like one of the early things you tried to do is implement this management system called Six Sigma. What, like, what is it and, and where does it come from? Well, Six Sigma actually goes back a long way, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, a fellow by the name of W. Edwards Deming was very big on this whole idea of quality is free. Huh. And if you just do a great job with product quality, all your costs go down, your customers are happier, your business is stronger. Uh, he could not sell that concept in the US to anybody huh. because in the US and in Western Europe at the time, it was perceived as you determine how much quality you can afford in whatever it is you do. So he took it to Japan, and there was a huge interest there amongst the auto manufacturers. And it's what led their onslaught in the US and their big wins with the quality of their products. They were making great products. Exactly. And people wanted them because they worked and they lasted forever. Yep. And of course, it ended up in photocopiers and uh, other areas. Sure. Cars and Walkman and- Everything. CD players. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it worked. And it worked, but did, did Six Sigma work? Well, what you should end up with with Six Sigma is these tremendously producible designs that sell really well because customers love them because they work really well and you never have a problem with them. Yeah. And my wake-up call happened after about, I guess I'd been there about 10 years. And I was touring a new aerospace plant in Malaysia. And I was going around and the plant manager was just unbelievably pleased with being able to show me at each workstation with each product they had taken on, how they had taken producibility, what we used to call first-time pass rate. Uh That's... What percent of the time does the product come out perfect the first time? And showing me all the stuff about how this one used to be 54%, now we have it at 76%. This one used to be at 70, now we've got it at 85. And I just went from workstation to workstation, and I finally said, why are these designs so bad? (laughs) You know, this stuff should be 99 plus. Yeah. And what I ended up learning 
was the aerospace guys, instead of fixing all these old designs, they just moved them into a lower cost facility and said, okay, we'll make bad product cheaper. And I went ballistic. Hmm. So we went on a three-year tear to fix all of those. And we took the top thousand designs and fixed them all. Hmm. And I, I give a lot of credit to the leader of that aerospace business, a fellow named Tim Mahoney at the time, hmm. for really taking that one on. And it made a huge difference for our business and for our customers. So as you started to implement this this sort of Six Sigma plan, did you have were there were people resisting it or yes. I mean, was there, and why? What were they worried about? It's a uh, very bureaucratic and a lot of math and not easy to understand. And in a lot of jobs, not easy to understand how it applies to you. Hmm. If I'd been smarter, I would have started with the design engineers on new products that we're developing and just concentrate all that capability on that and on those people so that you can watch it, you can contain it, you can make sure they fully understand what it is they're doing. And then when they see the result, then it causes everybody else around them to go, oh, wow, that works. God, maybe we should do that in other places. And you get a lot more pull. Hmm. And once we did that, and the other 225 plants saw what was possible, it's like everybody wanted it. All the business leaders wanted it. Hmm. The manufacturing guys did. And they all said, okay, we want to learn how to do that. That works. So you tested Six Sigma ideas in in a bunch of factories. And, and then I guess you refined it. And, and you and your team kind of come up with like a Honeywell version, a Honeywell operating system, um, which is a whole system for how the company should function, which I think was was a lot more like Toyota, right? Yeah, exactly. And 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 so, how long did it take for you to see results? Like after you kind of like turned on the the Honeywell operating system, you should start to see results in the first eighteen months. And I was very specific about how I defined results, and said it needs to show up in five areas: uh, safety, inventory, cost quality and delivery, and it needs to demonstrate better performance than whatever they had in their operating plan and by a significant margin. Because if you tell me you've done all this, but the numbers are no different than they were before, then you're obviously not doing it. The result has to be there. Yeah. But too many people confuse activity or process with results. And I wanted to make sure that this stuff paid off and it needed to pay off in those five areas. And it did. I mean, it did unbelievably well. It took us about 10 years to get it across the whole company. And it didn't help that I kept acquiring companies because we did about 100 acquisitions while I was there. Uh, so you keep adding new factories, so it requires uh, additional work. But it was always upside for us. In every acquisition we did, it was upside for us. You know, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you were must, must be one of the longest tenured CEOs in Honeywell's history, right? I mean, 2002 to 2017? 
You know, I never checked, and it's an old company. We're over a hundred years old, so yeah, right. I mean, but the, the the sort of the the life the lifespan of a CEO is sort of like the lifespan of an NFL player, right? I mean, it's two <laughs> it years. It used to be, yes, yeah. right. Three, right? I think you know? three. It's uh, it seems to hover somewhere between three and four years. Yeah, yeah you're right. Last three and four years, and then you have to another company, and then maybe not. You know, right? So fifteen years a long time to to run a company, and you steered it through some pretty big crises, including the financial crisis. Um, I'm wondering right now, right, David, we are, you're talking to me in a quarantined in your house in Florida and <laughs> I, well, normally we'd be in a studio together. I'm quarantined here. We sent you a microphone, right? Is that yeah, is, is we, okay yeah. to set this up? <laughs> yep. How, this is the biggest global health crisis in living history. And, and it's pretty clear there's going to be a massive economic crisis. Some people are saying there's going to be a W type of recovery where we're going to go up and down and up and down for a while. Some people are predicting a long, you know, two to five year uh, recession slash worse. We don't want to use the D word, right? <laughs> um, but this is a big. This is the biggest test of any CEO for any CEO now in history. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what would you do. You're you're running Honeywell. I mean, if you're running Honeywell right now, and and everything grinds to a halt because many of those operations are probably non-essential, what do you do? Well, a couple of things that I do tell people is whatever you do, don't panic as a CEO. And if there was ever a time when it's important to be able to be an independent thinker, it's at a time like this. And one of my observations dealing with a lot of smart people and being in business at a, some high levels for a long time and politicians, etc., is that independent thinking is a lot more rare than being smart. Mm. And there's a lot of smart people who can explain why things are the way they are and why things are going to be the way they're going to be. But they're kind of thinking with the herd. And they're really kind of able to explain how the herd is thinking. For somebody to be a really good leader, whether it's a nonprofit, a uh, a business, small or big, you got to be able to think for yourself. All those things your parents told you about be a leader, not a follower, think for yourself. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Very true as a CEO. So you can't work for consensus. You got to think about what do you think is right? And in general, you're going to be confronted with two bad options and you have to choose the least bad. Yeah. At a time when many of your people want you to find a third option where everything is okay. It doesn't exist. Yeah. As a leader, you need to make a decision and pick one of those least bad. You know, I I recently had a conversation with Simon Sinek, and I don't know if you've read any of his books, uh, Infinite Games is his latest book, but you know he he's written a lot about, it. and there is a a shift in 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 sort of the culture about um, what it means to run a business, right? Even we've even heard from Jamie Dimon saying things like, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so focused on shareholders and on return to shareholders. Maybe we we've got this all backwards, which um you know a lot of uh, economists and and uh, analysts have have said for a while that that there's been too much of a focus on shareholders and it what it does is it creates short term incentives and CEOs are incentivized to operate for the short term. 
What, what's your thoughts? I mean, do you do you think that we need to fundamentally change the way uh, you know business thinks about its role? That that you know that it, maybe it should maybe first and foremost should focus on its employees and then its customers and then maybe shareholders and the board next. Um, it's going to be a more complicated answer than uh, maybe what you're sure. looking for. Yeah, sure. So I was shocked to see a lot of the reaction to it is like saying, well, this finally shows that share owners are now on an equivalent uh, basis with communities and employees and customers. And says, well, no, that's not how it works, nor should it work that way. That is just going to give an excuse to poor leaders for poor performance. Mm. And I think that is a mistake. What you're saying is we're willing to tolerate a lower level of productivity, meaning a lower level of standard of living and how our standard of living progresses. And I think that's a mistake. And it's uh, everybody likes to point to Milton Friedman and say, well, sure. you know, his point of share owner uh, was absolutely wrong. But from the additional stuff I've read about it, his point was the same one I was making. That if you start to tell companies they need to think more like government and think about all these other constituencies, then your productivity is going to decline, your standard of living is going to decline, and you don't get anywhere. It just makes no sense. Do you, do you think that the leaders, or at least from your perspective, do you think that you were born to lead or do you think that you, you had to learn how to become a leader? Uh, I do think it's both. You've got to have uh, some innate desire and ability uh, to do it, but you learn a lot as you go along. And I've, uh, I used to say this to audiences all the time because I would talk to two to three of our leadership classes uh, every month. The first is you have to be able to get results and get them in the right way. And I tell them, look, if you didn't do that, if you weren't able to do that, you probably wouldn't be here already. So you know how to do that already. So the second one is tougher. You've got to be self-aware and you have to be a learner. And that has to be true your entire career. And I said, it has to be true for me. And you need to understand the impact you have on others, the impact they have on you. And if you run a meeting, I would say you need to understand it's your job to be right at the end of the meeting, not to be right at the beginning of the meeting. So you need to think about how do you run a meeting differently. And it's up to you to figure out what those things are. Hmm. And everybody's different. So you have to figure it out for yourself. And there's no coach or analyst that's going to help you with this because You've got to learn who you are, and you need to understand the impact you have on other people. And until you know that, you're not going to be as good a leader as you could be. And that always caused them to think an awful lot. And I usually share a couple of my issues and say, okay, here's what I've had to do in my learning process, painful and uncomfortable as it might be, but you got to go through it. <laughs> so I'd say it's both. There's nature and nurture. That's David Cody, former CEO of Honeywell. David is now the chairman of Vertiv, which provides equipment and services for data centers around the world. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. <laughs>